Welcome to show 32 of the C-Suite podcast, the third and final show in a series of specials that I am recording here at the Global ICO PR Summit taking place in Oxford. Now, my three guests had so much to talk about um, on their particular subject, we decided to dedicate a whole show to it. Joining me to discuss the future of public affairs are Frederick Lofthagen, Chief Executive Officer of Interrail, Caroline Venalish, Managing Director for the Brussels Office of Fleischmann Hillard, and Tungi van der Elst, who is Director of European Government Affairs at Westrock. Um, now, of course, if while listening uh, to the show you want to contribute to the discussion, you can do so by sharing any thoughts you might have on social media using the hashtag hash C-Suite podcast. Frederick, as you were chairing the session for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you can just give us a quick summary of the points you covered. Sure. Well, we covered quite a lot of items, actually, um, starting off by just looking at public affairs and the importance of public affairs as a function for a company. And uh, we, we shared some data points around that, uh, essentially coming from PwC, um, where CEOs have identified that their number one concern um, in terms of potential impact to their business uh, is over-regulation, and then followed by geopolitical risks. So obviously in that context, uh, one would be thinking that uh, you know, quite a lot of resource and effort are being put towards managing that particular risk. And we were discussing that, uh, and more specifically, the mismatch that we see in terms of resource allocation. We, we had some data points around that as well. Um, we, we moved on to talking about kind of the evolving skill set um, around public affairs, what you need today as compared to perhaps what you needed a couple of years ago, the advent of social media course, uh, playing an important role, campaign techniques that are evolving, uh, creativity that is coming into play more strongly, public opinion that is playing an increasingly important role, and public opinion also in the sense that how it's shaping public policy and the connection between those two. And that, um, that was leading on, I think, also to another aspect of it, which I would qualify as collaboration, because looking at public affairs, um, a lot of it has a tendency of focusing on risk and risk mitigation, which indeed is an important part of what public affairs practitioners do. But also the flip side of that is looking at things like uh, corporate purpose um, and sustainability um, and how public affairs can actually help a company to really do and act according to the purpose they, they, they have identified that they, they, they have. Um, and this also, I think, tied into reputation. Mm. Uh, and uh, needless to say, of course, governments can very quickly ruin the reputation of, of a company. And we had some example of that. Corporate tax is, is a very notable one uh, that a number of companies are being associated with yeah. because uh, of government action. Uh, and again, public opinion uh, playing into that. And I think so the, the boundaries, if you like, between public relations and public affairs are getting increasingly blurred, which is, I think, a good thing, and, and we discussed a little bit about the convergence, if you like, uh, between those disciplines. Well, you, you've mentioned a few things there that I want to go into a bit more detail, obviously, as, as we go through this podcast, but just sticking with you for, for a moment, um, a couple of months ago, your, your company, Interrail, uh, surveyed CEOs of independent uh, public affairs consultancies in 60 markets, and, and one of the findings that, that you mentioned in your session um, that was quite surprising was that despite CEOs' concerns about political risk, spending on public affairs is still only a fraction of what businesses spend on marketing, and I believe um, the, the, the number was something like 0.003% of total revenue of the Fortune 500. 
Yeah, it is actually quite a staggering number. In fact, uh, this is uh, corroborated by another uh, study that Transparency International did some time ago that, that looks into uh, what, we, what we do and, and money that is being spent on, on public affairs and, and lobbying. And, and looking at the top five spenders in Brussels, um, and uh, because we've got the transparency register, so you have to declare how much money you're spending either on consultancies or on yourself, if you like, if you're a corporate. And, and the top five spenders spend something like 0.003% of, of their combined turnover uh, on public affairs. So yes, there is arguably there's a mismatch there um, that I believe needs to be uh, rectified. But another study indicates that very few companies are actually able to determine or quantify the impact of overregulation or geopolitical risk to their business. So that makes their spending decisions and resource allocations more difficult to do. And I think that generally is, is a problem that has maybe hampered the, uh, the, the, the development and the maturity of the public affairs profession. Uh, but I think we're going to hopefully in the future uh, start overcoming that uh, so particular challenge. Okay, Sangi, let's bring you in at, at this point. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think that um, Frederick is absolutely right. One of the challenges that you face is uh, measuring the, the impact of a legislation, or whether it's as a risk or as an opportunity. And, and whenever you manage to do that, because the company has discipline to do it, or you are in a very clear situation, you will free up uh, the means. Um, you see that companies that have a strong financial discipline and that push you to go, to go towards that, uh, once you come up with the numbers, you can, you can, you can free up uh, ample resources. The thing is, um, more often than not, it is very hard to quantify uh, the opportunity that you can see, or it is very hard to quantify the risk, uh, just because you, know, you have so many factors that intervene in the development of a new regulation that impacts the framework of a company, that it's, it, it, it will always remain a guesswork. But there's still a lot of exercise and discipline to, to be gained there. Yes. Sure. C Caroline, let's, let's get you involved here. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, Frederick and uh, Tongi touched on you know, where we have limitations. And uh, I think a lot of companies still have uh, fragmented functions. They're uh, public affairs or government relations is still quite separate from their communications, so they're often only responding to crises uh, after they've happened or they're having problems getting budgets opened. Uh, but there are uh, shifts, and some companies are trying to look, uh, look ahead. Uh, ultimately, they're realizing their consumers, their customers, they're also citizens. They're also people who have views, who vote, who have uh, opinions on public issues. And uh, they're trying to position themselves. Uh, and uh, we've seen this with the um, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, for instance. Uh, companies like Unilever are always uh, quoted as being particularly leading in this field. Uh, but many others are beginning to understand that you can do well by doing good, uh, is a bit of the mantra. Uh, so they're coming together to try to support initiatives and uh, looking to find uh, more public acceptance and something that um, our company Fleischmann Hillard has developed called Shared Value and Shared Value Labs, which are, are run by a colleague of mine out of Washington, uh, really looking at how you can get companies involved with governments creating unusual alliances to tackle societal environmental problems. And uh, these are proving really more and more, I think finding more and more support in the corporate world. 
His view is with the US elections that uh, Hillary Clinton gets elected, she'd be very active in pursuing uh, what she calls the sort of power to convene. Uh, so there'll be lots of opportunities, but equally, if Mr. Trump wins, there will also be a bit of a retreat from government from a lot of the activities and, and multilateral institutions uh, such as the UN, so that there will actually be a requirement for corporations to fill quite a vacuum. Uh, but interesting trends. I want to pick up on, th on this topic of uh, political unrest, and, um, and obviously, you know, we can't avoid the, uh, the, the big news of, of Brexit. Um, what, what's in you know, what I'd be keen to know is whether or not we're even in a position yet to know what the impact will have on, on public affairs moving forward. Tungi, perhaps as, as someone operating out of Switzerland, maybe you can give an outsider's perspective on it. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, but uh, on the Brexit issue, I really struggle to find any reasons to be optimistic. Uh, we'll have a bad solution or even worse. That's, that's my, my view. Um, Switzerland can provide some insights. Uh, two years ago, they had their own referendum on uh, controlling migration, which uh, got a majority. And uh, that was uh, facing a strong review by the European Union saying that, well, if Switzerland was to implement uh, the referendum, uh, basically all the bilateral agreements existing between Switzerland and the EU would be void because the free movement being so uh, essential to the very existence of the European Union. The Swiss thought that they would find some kind of a compromise, tried for two years, but finally last week, I think, or the week before, they had to uh, realize that the EU was not going to move and they quietly shifted uh, the referendum uh, to make sure that uh, they would maintain their uh, bilateral agreements because access to the European Union was considered as uh, too critical to the Swiss economy. Now, will we have the same outcome in uh, with Brexit? I'm afraid there's too much emotional e equity uh, to, to, to go back and that's why I really don't see uh, how we can come uh, to a satisfactory uh, solution. I think we'll all be losers, whether it's the UK or Europe. That's a bit uh, concerning. Caroline, as a, as a Brit um, working in Brussels, <laughs> what's the future like for you? Well, all I can say is I'm quite glad I've got a German name these days because um, it's amazing how quickly the waters start covering, uh, uh, closing uh, that side of the channel when it comes to uh, listening to or involving British voices and interests. And that's really uh, before we've even begun negotiations. So, uh, like Tongi, I'm, I'm not uh, optimistic. Uh, there is a lot at stake. And uh, when perhaps in Britain there's a sense of a sort of false sense of security uh, that things will go on, you know, Sterling's rallied, you know, consumer spending's up, so it's all not so bad. I always just respond that it hasn't really begun. We haven't even triggered Article 50 yet. We uh, don't know uh, what the outcomes will be. And those will only be felt probably at least five years hence. A lot of things for us to think about in, in our world in terms of what we're advising clients. The uncertainty is very bad for investment. Uh, it's unnerving also for uh, employees. They have to think about hiring, nationality. Even in our own office in, in Brussels, uh, we have to think about what networks we're covering, what member state coverage we have. And uh, we're sitting here today, or standing here today in Oxford, Education, I believe, uh, you know, this is just an example of how universities rely on funding, on cooperation, on exchanges, on academics, and uh, let's face it, education is one of our biggest exports in Britain, a uh, very successful one, and uh, 
as I said, the real ramifications of unravelling uh, the relationship uh, have not yet been felt. Frederick, what issues do you think uh, businesses will have to think about in terms of navigating this whole new political environment? Well, first of all, let me just say I kind of share colleagues' views on on where this one where this one is heading. Though that being said, two two perhaps quick observations. One is that the EU has quite an extraordinary ability to muddle through from one crisis to the next, and usually there's some kind of outcome that most uh, most uh, stakeholders uh, would would agree with. So so a little bit a glimmer of hope perhaps that the outcome is not going to be quite as terrible as we we potentially project it to be. I think the other the other one on timing. We have elections coming up, uh, so European elections in 2019. This would not be a good one to drag into uh, the 2019 elections, and and you know the thought, for instance, that the UK is actually going to have to send MEPs to to Brussels in 2019 is is, is interesting. Um, on the on the business side, I think I think uh, the first thing I would say is don't wait for for the outcome, uh, and don't spend too much time uh, trying to scenario plan around it because, frankly, it's speculation at this time. But what I think is important to note is that, and, and Caroline alluded to this as well, is that Brexit or the UK is losing its voice in Brussels today. Um, senior commission officials are retiring one after the other. MEPs are losing chairmanship opportunities uh, or, or being the rapporteur on a particular dossier um, uh, in the European Parliament. And it goes on and on like that. And many. Many British civil servants in Brussels today, part of the EU institutional framework, will tell you that, as far as they're concerned, their career is over. Um, and so, so that is that's happening actually already today. I think the other thing to think about in that context: so, who will replace the UK and the voice of the UK, in particular in the Council of Ministers, at kind of working group level? And, and then if you actually look around and you think about that, many people would say, well, that's probably going to be Germany. You know, we all know Germany very strong, but actually how strong are they on the smaller day-to-day kind of corporate questions? Um, they're very strong on the big macro political question, but on the day-to-day corporate issues, the amending this particular directive or that particular regulation, they may be not as effective as people might think. The French, on the other hand, are very effective. But the French, they have their own style and interests at heart, um, and maybe they don't resonate so well in some instances with the way the UK would approach things. So a lot of companies, they've kind of used the UK as the gateway, not only into the single market, but also into Brussels and, and, and exercising influence. And I'm thinking about US corporations or Japanese corporations. We know how concerned the Japanese are, certainly now uh, already. So I think we're going to have to think about, okay, what is going to be my engagement strategy going forward? And I think that's a process that really ought to start sooner rather than later because every company will have their own portfolio of issues and dependencies. And if you are dependent on the UK to defend you, if you like, uh, in the context of EU legislation or regulation, you should think about who your new friends uh, are going to be and start and start making those approaches. Are you getting concerns, questions from clients already, though, about this whole? No, I think uh, I think the you know picking up the point about denial. I think there's still a lot of what's happening and what's going to when when is Article 50 going to be triggered and is it going to be hard Brexit, soft Brexit? What alternatives are? Is going to be the Norwegian solution, the Swiss solution, or a hybrid solution? All of those kinds of conversations are being had, and I think 
my, the message I think I'm trying to convey to clients and others, and I don't think they have embraced it yet, uh, is that you should think about your engagement strategies now. It takes time to build friends, to build new allies. If you, if you don't know a single important civil servant in France that has a sway on EU decision-making, you should think about rectifying that because it'll take you a while to actually build those kinds of relations and build a rapport and build a reputation to make you a credible uh, uh, partner, if you like, to, 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 those, uh, to those officials. It's true that Brexit is still very much a concept because we, n we don't know when it will be triggered. We don't know what the outcome will be. But what you see as of today, I work for uh, a major American multinational, is that the investment strategy is already affected. I think that no company today will consider investing in the US, uh, in the UK, sorry, unless like uh, you have Nissan that ask for uh, very strict guarantees. So, so you see that the investment climate is already being affected because you know one thing you don't like when you invest is uncertainty. Caroline touched on this earlier. Obviously, we've got the uh, US elections uh, to come. We've been talking about Brexit, but wha what do you think the impact uh, that that may have, Frederick? Let's uh, let's go with you first. Well, uh, it depends obviously on the on the outcome of the election, who they who they are going to pick at the end of the day. Uh, I think if if it is uh, Mr. Trump, uh, I think we're in for interesting times, but. The, the narrative that he's been pushing out to, to the electorate, uh, one of arguably populism, anti-immigration sentiments and playing on that, etc. Uh, it's not a new thing, certainly as far as Europe is concerned. And, and, and if, you took it, if you take it in the context of the upcoming French elections, uh, for instance, and the prospect of uh, Marine Le Pen uh, actually becoming the president, now it's highly unlikely, arguably, but that's what we said about Brexit as well. Um, and we have elections coming up in Germany. We see the rise of the alternative for Germany, uh, you know, gaining, gaining stronghold in my own country. Uh, most people don't pay attention, but actually the third largest party uh, in Sweden is an anti-immigration uh, party with arguably uh, doubtful values. Frederick talked about uh, the impact of uh, potential uh, Trump president uh, and certainly the geopolitics. We'll have to see how all that pans out. Uh, a lot of question marks, uh, but the transatlantic relationship is already very strained. Uh, from a business perspective, there have been so many issues and tussles, uh, the way that the, the, the Dieselgate issue started in the States and sort of came back, and uh, now um, European banks being fined, uh, data protection issues, now the corporate tax taxation tussle uh, with a lot of US companies. Um, all of this is, is causing an underlying tension and, of course, the failure to really progress any uh, meaningful trade talks uh, under the whole TTIP initiative uh, means that um, the whole relationship with the, with the United States is going to need some recalibration, is I think the word that people are using. Overall, I think the uh, elections um, have also thrown up for us as public affairs practitioners some really big questions about how to advise clients, how to engage in political discourse, what what nature is of political discourse will there be in the future, uh, where uh, you can see that people who can lie and uh, be abusive, etc., can still get elected? Uh, this is concerning, I think. And um, there was an interesting uh, Economist front page uh, on the art of the lie, post-truth politics in the uh, age of social media. So that throws up a lot of questions, I think, for us as practitioners and indeed for our clients. 
There's uh, so much to get through here. Um, we're going to take a quick break. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, my guests, Frederick Lofthagen, Caroline Vinalish, and Tangi van der Els. Um, now, one of the areas that was touched on in your talk earlier um, was the new places and platforms that uh, campaigning is moving to. Um, Caroline, let's, uh, let's come to you on this one. How would you say that uh, public affairs engagement has evolved over recent years? It's changed enormously. Uh, you know, when I first went into uh, public affairs, uh, you were an expert if you managed to get a, a, a parliament committee agenda. Now, of course, uh, everything's online. And uh, about 10 years ago, we started seeing real movement uh, in the public affairs arena. Uh, the first blogs arrived, and uh, we as a company did our uh, digital trends survey of the European Parliament in 2009, and then with the subsequent parliament in 2015, we could see enormous developments in the way that uh, not just the politicians themselves, but most of all their advisors, their assistants were getting information, how they were researching issues on the, on the web. And of course, that has a direct impact on how policies are developed and how opinions are formed. So now, uh, it's not just MEPs putting up uh, websites and commissioners tweeting. Uh, we've now seen the sort of full engagement. And uh, most recently, Google, we saw getting YouTubers uh, famous YouTubers to come and uh, interview uh, President uh, Juncker of the Commission after his State of the European Union speech. We can really see a lot of development and all of the techniques from the communications world, storytelling, uh, authenticity, um, the need for ongoing content uh, rather than just sort of dry position papers. Uh, there are, I think, um, a lot of parallels with the evolution of the way that you seek engagement uh, with consumers and with customers, now also with decision makers and policy makers. Tangi, what's your thoughts on? Yeah, I can only concur. Um, as as recently as, as a couple of months ago, we had a, 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 um, a lobby campaign ongoing in Brussels. And yes, you still have to outreach to your policy makers, whether it's MEPs or, or, or members of the Commission on one-to-ones and leave them uh, a document with your position. But you have to add this whole, I would say, digital suite uh, and you have to work on storytelling, you know, every uh, lobby issue. Now you will find a little movie that's oversimplifying almost a cartoon because that's how people uh, digest messages. Uh, you, you enter into dialogues on, on, on Twitter and other, that's, that's really a new, a new development. Uh, that, that, that's clearly, you know, something that's being added recently. Yeah, I would just uh, add to that, and I concur entirely with what being said. I mean, there are two things that to me stands out a little bit. One is um, the attention span or the diminishment of the attention span of policymakers, politicians, and even, I arguably, uh, commission officials. And I think that's a general trend that we only have so many seconds available to actually hook on to a particular topic. And that has, of course, changed the dynamic significantly in terms of how you communicate and, and the use of video and all of that. 
But the flip side of that, I think, is important to remember as well. A lot of the things we deal with are quite technical, and as anyone will tell you in the public affairs, that they, when you're talking about legislation or regulation or, or directives, the devil is in the detail. So you have to allow yourself some time to sit down and talk through those details. If you have the, the issue with attention span, add to that kind of the rise of populism, and et cetera, et cetera, then lawmaking actually suffers as a result. Um, and, and, and no one at the end of the day uh, benefits from that. So we have to reconcile with the fact the attention span, the, the novelty of new, new so social media platforms, but also making sure that the law makes sense uh, at the end of the day. Frederick, all three of you there just talking about um, social media, Twitter, the power of influencers. Do, do you think your role has become harder given negative opinions of corporations can swell so much faster through social media? And, and also, I don't know whether or not you can share any first-hand experience of clients you've, you've actually worked with recently or, or issues you've had to overcome. Well, it depends on what you enjoy in life. I mean, complexity in of itself is good for the consulting business, arguably. Um, and so the challenge of, of the complexity is, I find, rather stimulating uh, and intellectually challenging. You just have to deploy different techniques as compared to the past. Um, there's a different pace in what we're doing. Um, there are certain moments where something really important may happen as part of a campaign. This, you know, the bus around that is actually quite exciting. It's certainly challenging. I think uh, what we're finding is that social media goes across borders so quickly. And uh, we've seen that through very effective NGO campaigns, whereas governments and regulation are still very much developed nationally. And uh, that means that while uh, movements are really sweeping, and I mentioned the TTIP uh, debate, they're moving across uh, you know, youth platforms, uh, church groups, you name it, environmental groups. Um, in the meantime, governments one by one are sort of grappling with these things at a much slower pace. So as public affairs practitioners, when you're trying to help corporations in that context, it's quite a challenge. Uh, we've been working uh, around the whole issue of um, uh, glyphosate, which is uh, a product used in crop science industry, uh, a pesticide, and uh, for, uh, as far as regulators were concerned, uh, not unsafe, but the campaign has been so uh, heated in, uh, in, in, and the debate in social media so um, active that uh, we've seen regulators actually postponing decisions. Uh, and in this case, instead of a license to operate for the next 15 years, uh, they've been given 18 months uh, while further research is done. So some very, very practical uh, and bottom line implications from the type of social media campaigns that are affecting regulators now. Well, I, I, I experience the same. I'm, I'm with Frederick. I mean, we as uh, public affairs professionals, we, we want to embrace complexity because that makes uh, our contribution so, so interesting and valuable to companies. The, the, the complexity, it's not only that you have uh, new uh, communication platforms, it's also that it becomes a very crowded place. When you have one directive, say, on, 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 on tobacco products or on packaging, you will have uh, all different types of industries that will come in and have their say on one specific piece of uh, legislation, and then you will have NGOs, which means that when you meet an MEP, you are probably the fifth or the sixth or the seventh um, public affairs representative or interest group representative that, that talks to him. Uh, that's another challenge. You know, How do you get his attention 
on very technical details where you know you have plenty of people that want his mm. attention. I wanted to pick up on one of the areas you discussed um, in, in your talk, and that was linking public affairs activity to business development. Tungi, let's come to you uh, first on this one. I was keen to find out how you actually go about measuring that. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a difficult exercise. Uh, sometimes it's easy, uh, but sometimes it's not. Uh, just to give you an example of something being easy, uh, if our company produces carbon pellets that are used in, in, in canisters to filter CO2 emissions of cars, uh, well, the volume of carbon pellets that we will sell is defined by, you know, this the, 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 re the regulatory size of a carbon canister. So if you manage to move the needle and convince regulators that, uh, that cars need bigger canisters, you can say that you will increase your, your, your volume by so much. And so you have a number and then you can, against that number, you say, well, it's worth investing some time and some some expertise to convince that. I would say that's, in, in terms of metrics, that's an easy one. Uh, but business development, when it's about seeing new opportunities that, 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 that you identify for your business, s in the beginning, it's always you know an in, in intuition. And yes, you, you, you might be right, but you have so many factors that comes in. So it's I think it's a matter of uh, as a public affairs practitioner, to you know, to see things before before your business, and then to be resilient and push it through until it becomes uh, some something consistent. But that's not. It's exciting, but it's not easy. I'm sure. Yeah, Fre Frederick, have you got anything there to, to add? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you're talking about measuring impact, I mean, you obviously have public affairs practitioners who support the business development function selling to government. So, you know, if you have a successful procurement, then obviously at the end of the day, you'll, you'll see the value, value of that. But also, I think the more important role public affairs practitioners can play, it's making the connection between policy and the solutions a company and organization provides. This is particularly true in the technology sector. I mean, there are technology advancements which are fantastic and that can help solve real political problems, be that in the healthcare space or in other areas. And you, as a, as a public affairs practitioner, should be part of the conversation of making that connection. Now, how you measure that can be a little bit, you have to see that a little bit, bit longer term, but I think uh, a lot of companies increasingly that are playing in an area that have a direct societal impact uh, have a lot of leverage and a lot of opportunity Looking into the uh, looking into the future. Do you know, I don't know what it is about Oxford, but that's not the first time I've been doing an interview here with sirens going off in the background. So congratulations for getting through that. Caroline, did you have anything to uh, to add to that? Yes, uh, no sirens, but we do have a bit of a of a sort of traffic light system for um, measurement, and uh, it goes back to points that Tongi and, and Frederick have both brought up. We have something called our GPS uh, sort of spectrum, and uh, we encourage clients to really think about what it is they're trying to achieve in the first place because it's hard to measure something if you don't know what the objective is. So we really look at it in, in the categories. Is it about promotion of a, of a competitive advantage of a, of a company interest uh, or a cause uh, in, the, in, the, in the public arena? Um, is it actually just about managing your reputation, uh, more the status quo, making sure nothing goes wrong because actually keeping out of the headlines is also sometimes uh, takes some work, uh, or on the other end of the spectrum, is it about real defense, product defense, your license to operate, uh, in the case that I mentioned earlier where you could have a, a substance or a product in your uh, uh, supply chain which is going to be banned, so that becomes a much more defensive strategy. 
So we always start, as I say, by really plotting out the whether it's a, a, a proactive, uh, neutral, or defensive uh, strategy, and then you can start trying to measure against that. Um, I loved the link from sirens to traffic lights there. You should be working in radio. Um, now, I've come to the final question for all three of you, um, and it's in two parts. Um, we've been talking about the future of the industry and also uh, talent requirements uh, throughout this um, ICO conference. So question is, thoughts on where public affairs is heading, and can you call on the appropriate uh, skill sets to get you there? Uh, Tungi, let's uh, come to you on this one. Well, we, we, we discussed Brexit and um, <coughs> the US elections. Um, I, th I think one of the symptoms that you see is, is a weakening of the institutions. And um, one of the consequences that I imagine will happen is that you will have less uh, regulation coming out of uh, one of the bodies that we, uh, the three of us happen to work a lot with, which is the European Union. And that will create a void that will be replaced by, uh, by others. Um, <coughs> I work in a business that's um, in the supply chain, and I really believe that uh, when major stakeholders of one leading supply chain will agree amongst themselves about some standards, <coughs> that will be become practice of almost virtual legislation for the whole supply chain. Which means that as a public affairs practitioner, you need to be close to not only to the governments in for the countries in which you operate, but also uh, to, to other companies that, that are in the same business or in the same supply chain um, as you are. So that's, that's one development I see, and I know Caroline has uh, some other developments to share with you. So Caroline, let's, uh, let's get your thoughts on it. Well, indeed, we keep saying we need really multi-talents, uh, multiple skills, uh, because there is so much multitasking involved these days in public affairs. Uh, traditionally, we've always placed value on people who understand uh, a sector, policy knowledge, what's going on, uh, issues, regulations, which are going to be affecting particular industries. On the other hand, you also need an enormous amount of political sensitivity. What trends, which direction is the debate going, who are the decision makers of the future going to be? And a lot of that's very volatile at the moment. Uh, you also need to have a very open-minded and uh, I think uh, outward-looking understanding of networks, of the way that information and decisions work. It's not just national, whether it's European or even global. What are the institutions and organizations which are affecting that? Uh, how they work, where they meet, what discussions go on, and how indeed trends that pop up in one uh, country suddenly find themselves migrating up to uh, a, a bigger level of decision making. So you need to understand those. You also need to have people who are very, very uh, savvy when it comes to social and digital um, tools, uh, understanding the way that campaigns are being run. And we are looking for people who do have real campaigning experience, whether it be political campaigning or through NGOs, uh, to be able to bring that uh, energy and the tools to getting messages across. And that includes also an element of the creativity, the visual design, production we've talked about, uh, a lot of, lot of videos happening now and interviews to tell the stories. And uh, what we're trying to do is really create teams of people, uh, specialists in these areas who can come together, learn from each other, and really sort of cooperate and share on a daily basis. Uh, Frederick, we started the uh, interview with you, so you get the final uh, words on it. <laughs> okay, so I'm just adding to what, what, what colleagues have been saying here. Um, the first question is where it's heading. I think, number one, I think it's growing. 
and it links back to uh, to political risk and how that's being perceived by chief executive of the C-suite in in most companies, uh, or 78 percent of them, according to uh, PwC uh, data. I think it's maturing as a function, which also goes back to the point about it's it's growing. Um, and I think also clearly it's it's evolving in terms of the role uh, that public affairs practitioners are playing. Um, you know, I think it, there's there's more of a role in terms of reputation, uh, increasingly a role in terms of uh, being part of the process of defining and actioning the company's purpose. Uh, business development is also something we've been talking about. I think there there I think there it's going to evolve as well. On the talent side. Um, you know, two sides of, of that particular coin. Yes, it's more challenging to find people who can actually uh, meet all the requirements. Uh, I think Caroline made the point earlier that uh, you're very rarely going to find uh, that skill set in one individual. So you have to work in a collaborative way with colleagues across disciplines to be able to carry out the campaigns uh, that you're doing in the future. I think international is becoming increasingly important. Uh, yes, changing campaign techniques as part of, of talent, and obviously that's going to change a little bit the profile of the people that we recruit. But very fundamentally, if you don't love politics, you should not be a public affairs practitioner. That's fair enough. Um, and that's a great way to finish. Thank you so much to all three of you for uh, joining the show. That's uh, Tangi van der Elst, Caroline van Alish, and Frederick Lufthagen. Um, and that actually completes my interviews for these uh, shows from uh, the ICO Global PR Summit here in Oxford. Ten fantastic guests taking me over the 100 mark as well. Um, and don't forget, if you want to listen back to some of those guests and any of the uh, great guests that we've had over the two and a bit years since I've been recording these, then just search for the C-Suite podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. And please, if you are a new listener, can you... Uh, help us up the iTunes charts by subscribing and giving us a positive uh, rating when you're there. Thanks also uh, to the global media intelligence provider Karma for supporting uh, these shows from ICO. Please do visit their website, that's uh, karma.com, to find out more about how they can help you deliver actionable insights through media monitoring and PR measurement. And a final reminder um, that if you want to get in touch with me about the show, whether that's to uh, take part or maybe even supporting it yourself, then you can use the contact form at csuitepodcast.com and uh, you can also follow me for updates on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. Thanks for listening and goodbye.